James chapter four. When I was 10 years old and my youngest sister was four, I shot her. Yeah, true story. Um, I told this story in here before. She was in my room and she would not get out of my room. So I picked up my pellet gun, pumped it as many times as my little arms could pump, um, aimed it at her, said, you better get out. She said, no. Blah. And so I shot her in the arm. Um, fun fact, when she was a senior in high school, she had an injury uh, playing soccer and it got an x-ray and the doctor's like, do you know you have like a, a BB stuck in you? And she's like, yeah, my brother is an idiot. Um, so the, it, it sounds worse than it, well, no, it was pretty bad. It's, <laughs> I was going to try to doctor it up, but it sounds pretty bad. The, the, the point is, the reason I tell that horrific story for some of you is, is that siblings fight. I don't know if any of you have brothers or sisters. I've got three younger sisters. I love them. In fact, we're, we're all grown now, and we are, they're some of my best friends on planet Earth. But when we were younger, we would, we would fight a lot. But as we grew older, our love for each other grew, and our fighting decreased. And that's kind of the path, and that's kind of a normal human trajectory for, for siblings and really for people in general. But the, the problem is, is that Christian brothers and sisters, or people who are in the church, they, they fight too. But a lot of times, those fights don't decrease over time. They actually increase over time. And they can drive these wedges in that separate us. And so James is going to address that in James chapter 4. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and then we'll just work through that briefly in the next few moments that we have together. James chapter 4, verse 1. This is what, well, listen to what he says. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, to spend it on yourself. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And James kind of takes a break here and he says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So James, as we've been kind of noticing as we've been working through this book, pretty straightforward guy, pretty cuts right to the chase. But James is describing this conflict, this conflict that we've all experienced inside the church and outside of the church. He's talking specifically to the church at this moment. There's, there's a guy, his name's Dr. Gregory Stanton, and, and he did this research on the eight stages of genocide. 
and, and he says, first it starts with classification. So classification means, okay, there, now there's us and them. And you start to use that language, like us and, and, and them. And then there's, then there's the next phase is to symbolize. So like they have a particular dress code, for instance. They look a particular way. And then you dehumanize this other, this group, which means they're not as valued. So I've already set them apart. I've already identified them as looking a certain way, looking different. Then I dehumanize them, which means they don't have the same value as I do. or they don't, That tribe does not have the same value as our tribe. And then I actually polarize. I make drastic separation between us and them, or tribe and tribe. And then I identify. I have to take a stand and I have to plant a stake and, and fly a flag for which particular tribe that I'm in. And then finally, that moves on to violence, which leads to war. Those are the eight steps of genocide. So if you've looked at that across world history and the different places that happen, he's analyzed that. And the reason I share that with you is because that happens a lot in the church. That's happened to some of you in the church. You've gone through some of those phases. Maybe even you've participated in some of those stages. In the Bible, we see that there's these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers that they fight each other and say, okay, who's really saved? Are you really saved? Are we really saved? And you see it all throughout church history, unfortunately, that the, the, the church fights among itself. So you've got the East versus the West. You've got Catholics versus Orthodox. I mean, the, the, it's been said that the, the blood of Europe is stained with the, with the blood of professing, or the, the ground of Europe is stained with the blood of professing Christians who were killed by other professing Christians. And it's not just a historical thing. It's all over the American church. And we don't even have to look at, at, at back into history. We just have to look at ourselves because we still do this today. We, we fight over denominations. We fight over different ministry groups. We talk bad about other churches. We get in disagreements about their style of worship versus our style of worship. I, I have played, I, I was in a church league softball with thing, which is as lame as it sounds, where in one of the games, pastors and employees from churches literally fought each other in the, in the middle of this game. And so James is looking at the church, both historically and I believe today as well. And he's saying, look, brothers, this is not the way that it ought to be. He said that in his letter earlier. And he, he starts with this question. He says, what causes these fights and these quarrels among you? So he's assuming that there's fights and quarrels among us, which there are. So James assumes correctly. And he says, in your groups or in your circles, what causes the friction? What makes you angry towards other people? What, 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 what causes you to talk bad about the other, pe- the other people? What, what's interesting James, he's going he's gonna to hit on the heartbeat of his letter. Last week, um, if you were with us outside, Shannon taught on wisdom, which I thought was great. And, and where he landed was, you see that this wisdom is really, it, James is really talking about peace. And he's bringing it up here again. He's like, look, you're not a people of peace, you're a people of conflict. And, and what he said is that real wisdom brings forth peace. And the problem is, your community, James is saying to us, your community is not peaceful. In fact, it's unstable, and it's unstable in all of its ways because you're, you're foolish, because you're envious. He says because you're self-absorbed, because you're unspiritual. He goes so far to say because you're demonic. And James says there's a problem. There's, there's conflict. 
And all through the book of James, it's been really, for me, it's been a really good journey. I don't know about you. But, but he's been kind of addressing the branches of the conflict that we all walk in, wait in, experience. He, he addressed the, the, the branch of conflict in the way that we talk, the way that we talk about each other, the way that we talk to each other. He's, he's addressed the way that we treat people different than us, the way that there's partiality. He, he's, he's talked about the way that we treat the poor. And now what James is going to do and kind of going forward is he's going to get down to like the trunk of this tree and he's going to say, look, this is the issue. And then he's going to teach us, this is how you uproot this kind of tree of conflict that's growing in your, in your community. So James, he's gonna, we're going to see briefly here, he's going to diagnose our illness, and then he's going to go deeper, and then he's going to tell us what the remedy is. So the diagnosis that James kind of is bringing to us through his letter tonight is he's saying, he starts with this question, what causes the fights, what causes the quarrels, what causes the drama that's going on in your, in your community, why is this going on? And then he moves on and he actually answers that question for us. He says, you know why you have conflict and you know why you have wars? Let me, let me distill it down for you. Let me help you out. It's because of you. But more specifically, the problem is because of your desires. He uses this Greek word there, hedone, which is the word where we get hedonism. He says, look, it's your self-indulgence. It's your sinful desires. That's the problem. You have these passions that are at war in you. The war that is inside of you is spilling over and causing war, causing conflict in the community. That doesn't, like, how does that work? Like, James, what are you talking about? Like, how is it that there's this conflict in me? How is it that there's this war in me that's causing conflict for others? How how does that work? Well, he explains it in verse 2. Look at verse 2, chapter 4. He says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. When you want something and you don't get it, you get mad and you start to throw down. That's what James is saying. And he's saying, look, these arguments, they're all happening, they're happening because of you, because of what's going on inside of you. Now, you, you'll notice that James, he doesn't spend any time talking about the things that they're actually fighting about because that issue doesn't matter. Because wh- whatever the thing that you're arguing about, it doesn't matter because it's not about that thing. When it escalates into a war or to a battle or into murder, it's no longer about the thing. It's no longer about the issue. It's about the heart. When, when, when my kids, my kids are, are, are young, but when they're fighting over a toy or they're fighting over something, they're fighting with each other, I, I don't really care about like who gets the Lego or whatever. I just want them... To, to stop and chill out mostly, but I want to speak to their heart. I, I want to I get down to the root of why is it that, that you're, you're selfish? Why is it that you're fighting with one another? Because there's something that's going on inside of you. The minute that it becomes a war, the minute that it gets to this level of conflict that James is talking about here, it's not about the issue anymore. It's about your heart. And, and if you're missing that in the book of James, you really need to key in on that because that's always where he's going. Yes, he's talked a ton about our behavior. He's talked a ton about our activity and and our attitudes, but he's really trying to dial in on your heart, why it is that you are the way that you are. It's about your heart because you are all about you. Your desires, your pleasure, your fame, your glory, you want to win. You, and that's why, you, that's why you fight, James says. That's the issue, and that's where you're wrong. And, and we see it all the time. You, you see it in your own heart. 
Why is it that when, when somebody around us is telling a story, we can't wait to tell our story? They just told a story about something awesome that they did, and we're like, oh, I can't wait to tell the story about the thing that I did that's more awesome so that everybody can hear that I'm more awesome than them. Why do we do that? Because it's all about me. It's all about more. It's all about me and more. It becomes a celebration of me. Why do we categorize and dismiss whole groups of people? Have you ever criticized a church that you've never even been to before? Why do we do that? Because we want our camp, because we want our tribe, we want our group to be better. We want whatever the thing is that we are a part of, we want that to be the best. And we want everybody to know that. And James says, look, it's, it's not about peace. It's not about mutual encouragement. It's not about kingdom and mission. It's about you and how great you think you are and how much you want everybody to know how great you are. And then James says, look, and you're really stuck and you're really sick in it because you're not even praying about it. Look at, look at what he says in verse three. He says, you ask, you don't receive because you, um, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. James says, look, God can't even get behind your prayers because they're all rooted in you and they're all rooted in your fame and in your glory. You're, you are consumed by the glorification of you, not God. And then in verse four, he gets really strong. He says, you adulteress. Now here, here's where James gets that. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 54, God tells his people, he, he says, look, your maker is your husband. So what God is saying is, look, I'm, I'm a husband to you. In the New Testament, they use the language of like the church, those who are followers of Jesus, you're the bride of Christ. In, in the book of Jeremiah, he says to his people, he says, look, you, you've wandered from God, so you're like a woman who is unfaithful to her husband. God's saying through the prophet Jeremiah, you're, you're unfaithful to me. And in the, in the Old Testament, what the people of God, what they would constantly do is that they would take the name of God, which was extremely significant. They would take in the name of God, and then they would go and they would worship idols, and they'd mess around with these other gods, lowercase g, and, and mess around with what other cultures were doing, um, and God would say, look, you're hooking up with other gods and it's messed up and I don't like that. And so what James does is he kind of imports that thinking and imports that reality to us today. And he says, look, if you're in the church, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, but you're out kind of chasing your own glory, you're, you're cheating on God. You're supposed to be with God. You belong to him. He says, if you take the name as a Jesus follower and then you start to date popularity or you start to date self-promotion or you try to hook up with money and greed, you, you, you're, you're seeing sexual immorality on the side. If, if that's you, he says, you are an adulterer. He, he says it really strong. He says, don't you know that your friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? That's strong. Now, to be really clear, James is not saying you can't be friends with non-Christians. He's not saying that at all. Or that you shouldn't be involved in culture or that you shouldn't be involved in the world. What he's saying is he's saying, like, friendships in this context are an intimate union of life. It's the same context of marriage. And God says, look, if you're united with me, if you're in covenantal relationship with me, and you go out and you spend your time and you get in bed with these other pursuits, God says, you're cheating on me. In, in, in verse 5, James is trying to press this even further and, 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 and hearken back to something that God has said. He said, look, do you suppose it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, 
This verse is actually one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to translate um, because it's difficult to understand how the Greek has, is stating it. But a lot of scholars, and I would agree, that say that the ESV gets, gets it right. But, but the, the, the wording there is that the Spirit envies intensely. So God yearns towards the Spirit of God that he has put in, in you. Basically what James is saying is, look, you are an adulteress, but God says, don't you realize that even though you're an adulteress, that I'm, I'm jealous for you. I'm, I'm a jealous husband. But it's jealous in a good way. God says, look, I want you for me. I don't want you out chasing all these other gods because I want you for me. Um, Oprah had this interview once and she was talking about how she had left Christianity um, and she went and, and started Oprahism or whatever it is that she's kind of into. Um, and they were asking her kind of how that shift happened. And she said, I was sitting in church and the pastor said, God is a jealous God. And she said, when I heard that, I just thought that was so petty. And I thought your God is so small. And Oprah says, well, because of that, I left the church. Now what, what James is talking about is it's not talking about God is petty. Like God is checking your text to see like who you're talking to, who you're talking to, who called you, you know, who, who, you, who, who you're following on Instagram, whatever. That's not it. That's not what he's doing. It's saying that God is jealous in a good way. Like, like, a, like a spouse is jealous in a good way. Like when my wife comes to me and she says, hey, I love you. I really don't want you to date other women. That is not an outlandish request, right? I'm not like, well, you're just like, you're being really petty right now. When I look at her and I was like, hey, you know what? I want you to go on a date with me. I'm not other dudes, just me and you. We're, okay, right? I'm, because I'm jealous for her. He says, God says, I want you just for me. I'm jealous for you. If you're mine, you run with me. But if you're running after your own power, and if you're running after your own fame and your own glory, if your only pursuit in life is for you to make a name for yourself and not live for the name that is above all names, God says, that's dark. And it's like you're cheating on me. I mean, he uses that word adultery. We don't even use that word. We will just say, yeah, like he was married and then he started seeing somebody else. Like we kind of dress it up a little bit because adultery is, str- is strong. It's a strong word. But James, man, he, he puts it out there and he says, look, I'm giving you this word and I want to make you look at it. I want you to stare at it. I want you to feel the sting of it. He wants to shock us. He wants to scare us. He wants to disturb us. And he, and he says, look, if you're in a group and you talk bad about someone in another group because you want to make yourself look better, or if you hear bad news about another group, or you hear bad news about somebody else, and you rejoice over that, so that's dark. That's sick. There's something broken in your heart. James says it's adultery. So that you would step back, so that you might be shocked. It's like... Um, do you remember that movie, uh, uh, Juno, right? So it's about this young girl, she gets pregnant and then there's this family that starts kind of like hanging out with her and in a lot of ways kind of adopts her and um, she like gets to be kind of close friends with the husband and uh, they're in the basement kind of playing guitar together and um, you know, she thinks, no, we're just, you know, friends, we're just kind of hanging out and then like he makes a move and tries to kiss her and she's shocked, she's like, what are you doing? And she's leaving and the wife says, what did you think was going to happen? 
like, what did you think you were doing? Kind of hanging around my husband like that. And I, I think that's kind of the sentiment of what James is trying to tell us and talk to the church. Like, what do you think is going to happen with your friendship with the world? You're, you're, you're flirting with all these things that the world values. What, what do you, how do you think that's going to end? Do you think that's going to end well? Do you think that won't end in heartache? Do you think that won't end in your brokenness? And, and, and what James is doing through this book, James, James is a pretty good counselor. My wife does this a lot. She, um, she kind of calls it the, the confrontation Oreo. So like on the top part, she'll say something really like nice and loving. Like, hey, you know what? I just really like love the way that you're like working and caring for the family. And I'm like, oh, thanks. And she kind of like will lure me in. And then the middle part is like, but you know what? And then that middle part, like, she kind of gives me the goods. And then on the end, she's like, no, but seriously, I really love you. You know? But, but it's good. That's, it, 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 and it's a, it's a really good, it's a good tactic, actually. Um, and that's kind of what James is doing. Like, James, he kind of lures us in, and then he gives us the goods. And then in verse 6, he ends with love. And, and verse 6 is so, and so important for us. But look, look, at what he, look at what he says there. He's like, but he gives more grace. Now, when we read this, there needs to be conviction. Some of you, some of you need to weep and cry over the way that you have treated each other. That needs to happen. There needs, you need to feel it. You need to feel the pain that you have caused others. But don't despair. Because James says his grace is greater. His grace is bigger. It can subdue the most wicked things in your heart. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, which means that he moves towards you in your brokenness. When you're broken and contrite over your sin, over your rebellion, James says that's when God moves towards you. And... and, in my life, um, I'll just kind of let you in a little bit here. In, in my life and what I do, there is a, a certain amount of it that breeds this, like, insecurity. So when I'm sitting here and I'm talking about this, your dating popularity or your dating, like, acceptance or you um, are living for the fame and the attention and the glory of man, like, that's all over me. I mean, I just, I, I feel that all the time because... I have these opportunities where I stand up in front of groups of people and have to say things and there is the constant temptation and also the insecurity that kind of comes along with that as well too. It's like, I really want them to like me. Like I really want them to like what I have to say and I really want them to like, like how I say it. And it's really, really sick and twisted. And I have grown, thanks to the help of other people, but also I think to the Spirit of God and just time and his word, I have grown in awareness of that and when I see it and when I sense it, I'm able to, to stop and not be consumed about it. But there was a moment, this was, this was a few years ago, where there was, a, there was another kind of young adult ministry in town and um, it was really great. I mean, it was a really great community and the things that they were doing were pretty cool and they met in a really cool spot and it had like all this momentum and it had all this kind of great stuff going on and at the same time, the ministry that I was leading didn't have those things and so 
I was just really wrecked with jealousy. And it was dark. And it was bad. And it was downright evil. It was adultery. And I wasn't passionate about the gospel going forward. I wasn't passionate about, you know, there are people who are coming to Jesus. I wasn't passionate about the church growing or kingdom growing. I was, I was just consumed with, with, with me. Um, and, and I just remember like this very stark moment where God just kind of hit me like with a ton of bricks. He's like, so you're not okay with this community that's growing and flourishing but you're okay with using my word and using my people for your fame and for your glory? Now, in that moment, what I could have done is just hit myself over the head with a baseball bat and buried myself in a ditch, but I didn't. I felt the weight of it. I felt the pain of it, um, But in that moment, I have to realize that I'm way out of line, but I have to ask God to rescue my heart and to remember verse six. He gives more grace. I have loved this definition of grace that really personifies grace because we throw grace around like all the time and we don't know like, is that just something I say before dinner or what is that? Like, what is grace, right? Is that the name of a person? Is that a concept thing? I love to personify grace in the person of Jesus. And, and my favorite definition of grace is the superabundance. So there's abundance and then there's superabundance. Superabundance of God himself, which is seen namely in the person of Jesus Christ. And for me personally, that just makes it a lot more easy for me to attach to it. And so if I say, okay, he gives more grace and I put in, I substitute for grace Jesus, which I think is, completely biblical. He gives more Jesus. He gives more of himself. So in these moments, when I'm tempted with the desire to like, I really want people to like me. I really want people to like what I'm doing. I want the affirmation that comes from people. I recognize that. I realize that it's sin. I realize that it's adultery. And I claim the promise that Jesus, you are going to give me more of yourself right now. And the acceptance that I crave in people I know is really only truly going to be found in you. And you're not just going to give me like a drop. You're going to absolutely flood me with you. And I'm claiming that. And I believe that. And I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to rest in that. And I'm going to live out of that. I remember that God opposes the proud. And so I humbly go to him. Now, what does that look like? How do, you, how do you do this? Well, James helps us very clearly in verse seven. Listen, listen to what he says here. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, he's not talking about conversion. He's not talking about like, look, if you just kind of start walking towards God, he's gonna start walking towards you and he'll just kind of meet you somewhere halfway in the middle. He's not talking about that. He's talking to believers who have acted like the prodigal son, who went out and wasted all their money and wasted all their time and blew their inheritance and started messing around with pigs. And then finally, like the scripture says, they came to their sentence and they headed towards home and on the horizon, they see the father. 
and the father is tearing down the driveway, arms wide open after them to embrace them. That's the picture that James is painting for us. He says, move away from the devil, move towards God. And, and the word for the devil there is the word diablo, which the word dia means to cut through. The, the devil is, is, um, is described as an adversary. So, so someone who tries to separate Someone, someone tries to cut you out. Someone who tries to separate you from God. Someone who tries to separate you from God and make you an adulteress. And God promises, look, when you want out, when you come to your senses, like the prodigal son, when you want out of that, Satan will flee and God will move towards you. The early church did something that was absolutely beautiful um, during baptism. They would walk up to the water and before they would enter in, um, they would turn away from the water and kind of back towards the congregation and they, and they would throw their hands up and they would say, I renounce you, Satan, and all of your works. And, and they saw baptism truly as this union with the Trinity and they would take this moment to claim their identity as sons and daughters of the Father and to say, look, Satan, I'm done with you. And then they would go into the water and we need to remember our baptismal identity so if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, that's, you have a baptismal identity, which, which means that baptism for you is not just simply like an event in your life that you just kind of check off. You're like, oh yeah, that's the thing I went to and my whole family came and then they took me to oregano's afterwards. That was really great. No, baptism for you is a place of remembrance. It's a moment that crystallizes your very identity. You have a baptismal identity, which means that the truth of who you are in Jesus is not something that can just bend around your life. And this is what James is driving at. This is the heart of what James is trying to address in the church and with Christians today. Because so often what we want to do is like, Jesus is great, really like that guy. If there's some way that I can just kind of make him an accessory to what's going on, like he's a handbag or like a, you know, something else that you can bring around. I only know of one accessory, apparently. Um, and what we try to do is we try to take Jesus and we try to bend him around our life. But Jesus has to be what shapes our life. Tim used this great illustration this past week talking about like kind of like how there's a the straightening, like a father to the son is, offers like this kind of, the straightening. And that's exactly what Jesus does to our crooked life. He straightens it. He, in fact, it says in the scripture, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all the high places low. And I'm going to rise up all the low places. I'm going to make all the crooked places straight. That's what Jesus is doing in our life. But what we try to do is we say, no, 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 no. I, I have this crooked life and I'd really love it, Jesus, if you would just kind of, if you just kind of bend yourself around my life, and, and so in the places where I, I, I feel like I really need you, you know, like when I'm up for the promotion or during finals week, that'd be really great. That we think that that's the way that Jesus is going to fit or kind of cram into our life. And James says, no, that's not the way that it works. We need to remember our baptismal identity, which is the death and burial of our old life, our old selves, our old way of thinking, and the resurrection of a new life. A resurrection of a new way of thinking. A resurrection of a new way of living. And, and what we need to do is we make, need to make that a, a, part, a constant part of our prayer. Uh, one pastor says it's the mortification of sin and self, which means in your prayer life and in your moments and your, your time alone with God, you're saying, God, I want there to be a, a death to selfishness. Put it to death. I want there to be a death to gossip. 
I want there to be a death to lying. I want there to be a death to envy and a death to jealousy and a death to sexual immorality. I want there to be a death to greed. I want there to be a death to comparison. And I want life to Jesus. And I want life to his purposes. Pray for a mortification of self and life to Jesus. And then James move on, moves on, in case you didn't get the point. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your minds, you double-minded. He's using this kind of priestly imagery there from the Old Testament. And he says, look, when the priests would move to the temple of God, they'd wash their hands as a symbol. And they'd say, God, there are sinful things that I've touched. And there are sinful things that I've been a part of. And I don't want to be a part of them anymore. And then they said, God, I want my heart to be near to you. I want, I want it to be pure. And I'm I, asking you to purify it. He uses these priest images as you move towards God. Stop the external things that are unhealthy and ask God to put your heart in a healthy place. Then he uses this prophetic imagery. The, the, the prophets throughout the Old Testament, what they would do is they would say things like, you need to be wretched, you need to be more, and they would really just kind of lay people out, turn your joy to, to gloom. In the, in the Old Testament, it, it says that the person who would laugh at sin or scoff at sin, that person was the fool, and, and that is really just the, the temperature of our culture. It has been for a long time. But it's currently, that is the, the, that's a, the temperature, that's the, 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 the perspective of our culture, that we just laugh at sin. And, and what James is saying, look, don't be so casual about the things that God came to destroy. Don't laugh at the things that God hates. Don't call funny the evil that God died for. Look at sin, call it evil. James says, if you see it in you, mourn. Mourn for that. It's you saying, God, it kills me that this is a part of me. This selfishness, this greed, this gossip, this lying, this, this fear, this... God, this kills me that it's in me. This thing that you hate is a, is a part of me. But then he comforts again. He says, humble yourself before the Lord. He'll exalt you. He'll come, ne- he'll come near you. So, some of you, your heart needs to break over how selfish and how prideful and how arrogant you've been. You, that needs to happen. Your heart needs to break over that. But James says, don't grieve as someone who doesn't have hope. You grieve over your sin, but you believe the promise that when when you come humbly to God and you say, God, I need this to stop in my life, that God comes in and he meets you with grace. That yes, that we are adulterous. That is true. But an even greater truth is that God yearns for you. Um, there's, a, there's a story in the scriptures. There's a book in the scriptures. Um, and for whatever reason, God has really kind of just brought this up several times over the course of this year. And again, it's showing up in this series. But um, about 800 years before Jesus was born, uh, the nation of Israel, so this is the people of God, they were in just an absolute mess. So at this time, God's people, they were in two geographic regions. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, Israel, was just particularly terrible. They had a king who was an absolute fool. He had brought back idol worship. Um, he, uh, things had just absolutely decayed and, and fallen apart. So again, remember, these are the people that God had chosen to be his people. Um, 
and he said, I'm calling you out of the world to show everybody who I am and to show everybody what it looks like to follow Yahweh, the one true God. These were the people that God had handpicked. You're my people. I love you. I'm going to make covenant with you. I'm going to make promises for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bring freedom to you. All these things. And they've just absolutely wandered and blown it. And the whole thing was just an absolute mess. And, and, and they looked around this people of, the people of God and they saw that other cultures, other people, they had idols and they said, well, we want those idols. And God said, yeah, but you have me. And they said, yeah, well, you're not enough. We, we want what the world offers. And so they chase it. And it's just an absolute, just absolute train wreck. And so God... Um, what he would do is he would call these representatives, um, their prophets. They were mouthpieces for God. So God would speak to these men. These men would speak the very words of God to his people in an effort um, to do exactly what James has been doing for us. And there was one particular guy um, who I have really grown to love over the course of this year named Hosea. Um, and you can find his story in a book called Hosea. <laughs> and um, God is going to send... Hosea to these people. Now, we can just kind of listen to Bible stories and think that, you know, oh, that's just a story, like a fable. But put yourself in this guy's shoes for a second. Um, so you have to go to this entire nation, this people, who have not just wandered from God. They're completely opposed to who he is. And God says, you, you go. And I want you to take my word to them and I want you to call them back to me. And so Jose has to go as the spokesperson for God in a really, really dark time. And, and, the, and, the, and it was so dark that the, the worship of the people of God at that time included drunkenness and temple prostitution and even child sacrifice. And into this world, Hosea has to walk. Um, but God is faithful God's faithful, and so that's why he sends Hosea, and Hosea says, okay, I'll go. God says, okay, one more thing before you start. I want you to get married. Hosea says, okay, that's a good call. I want to get married. Um, a team is good. I'd rather, you know, go as a team than just myself. And um, Hosea says, who's the, who's the lucky gal? And God says, oh, that's great. It's Gomer. Gomer uh, was a prostitute, and uh, God says, I want you to marry her. Gomer the prostitute, take her as your wife. Again, don't just think of it as a story. Kind of put yourself in those shoes. You know, you're getting ready to send out all the save the date cards and the invitations are going out. You're talking to people and they're like, hey man, I heard you're getting married. That's great. Who is it? It's Gomer. Wait, Gomer? The Gomer, the Gomer I've heard of? Hosea says, yeah. So Hosea the pastor and Gomer the prostitute. Are going to get married, um, and Gomer said, and God and Hosea just says, God put it on my heart. I'm supposed to pledge my life and all my love and all my devotion to her. And he says to Gomer, I want you to be my beloved, and I want to be your beloved. And Gomer says yes. And so Hosea and Gomer embark on this journey that God has set up for them, and they start this life together. The son of this prophet of God the prostitute. And at first, things are great. They have a son. They got a little boy. His name is Jezreel. And if you uh, Google that name, you'd find out that's not really a name that you would want. Um, 
And when you hear that, you just know right away, like this is, this is gonna be a rough story for Hosea. Um, but they love their little family. Gomer um, apparently had a really difficult time kind of dealing with her past. And as you look in that story, that past resurface and Hosea is trying to speak to God's people. He's trying to lead God's people out of this darkness that they're in. And Gomer is drifting further and further and further away from her commitments with Hosea. Um, and eventually Gomer got pregnant and she gave birth to a little girl. And Hosea knew it wasn't his little girl. And they named her Lo Rahama, which means unloved. So you got Hosea, the pastor, Gomer, the unfaithful wife, and you got two little kids. You got a boy whose name means I will judge, and now there's a little half-sister named Unloved. And Hosea, again, put yourself in the story. Again, Hosea is just trying to keep this family together and his ministry together and life together. But whatever was there in Gomer, whatever was stirring, whatever brought that wandering, just continued to grow and grow and grow. And the story repeated and again. She became pregnant. And again, somehow Hosea knows this is not my child. And they named him Loami, which simply means not mine. So here's the man of God, this incredibly dark era. I mean, the people of God have just absolutely gone off the rails. He's trying to hold it all together with this prostitute wife who by now has two other children from two other relationships. And he's trying to be God's representative and God's mouthpiece in the midst of all this craziness. And then one day, one day, something just flips in Gomer. And it wasn't just like the one night stands. She wasn't just kind of staying out at the club all night and coming home after shacking up with a guy. She just splits. And there's somebody who comes along and says to Gomer, you come with me, you leave your life, and I'll take care of you. We'll have the best time ever. And like you and like me, who have believed that lie, Gomer believes that lie. And she just splits. And she completely leaves and as you can imagine, Gomer and her new lover absolutely just have their fill. And they go wild with each other. Um, and so now you've got Hosea. He's trying to hold it down with these kids and a wife that has left him. Um, and then as you can expect, um, one day her new lover, he gets over his fling gets over his enjoyment of her and he ditches her. And now Gomer is so desperate that she has to sell herself into slavery just to live. Um, and of course, that news gets back to Hosea. The messenger comes to him and says, Hosea, you are not gonna believe what I have just found out. You're not gonna believe what I have seen. I saw Gomer in the middle of town on the auction block and she looked terrible. She was broken and haggard and busted. That guy that she ran off with, he dumped her. He totally left her. Now imagine Gomer, the embarrassment, the abandonment. And I can imagine if, if I'm this kind of messenger, you know, you're like, you're thinking that Hosea is gonna be excited because Gomer finally got what she deserved. The messenger is probably like, hey, Hosea, you know, the way that Gomer made you feel, that's how she feels now. And, and 
there's that expectation that Hosea would rejoice that he'd say, finally, justice, finally, this vindication. But Hosea gets that news and he's absolutely wrecked over it. And he says, where is she? Point me in the direction. And he takes off Taryn towards the center of town where that auction block's being. And on the way, he's asking people, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Where is she? How do I get to her? How do I get to her? And finally, he comes to her and he, and he runs towards her and he, and he, sees the, the, he sees the price. It's the price of a slave that no one else will pay. And his heart melts. And he says in this moment, that is my wife. That is my, that's my beloved who I pledged my life and my love to. And he pays 15 shekels of silver and 13 bushels of barley. And he pays the price to buy Gomer back off the auction block. And he says to her, I will be yours if you'll be mine. And in that kind of story, in the bigger story, Hosea and Gomer will fade away, but Jesus will emerge. And, and like the dawn of day, he says, I will come for you. And he says, I will seek after you and I will pursue you. And when I find you, I will pour out my affection for you and I'll pay whatever it takes to buy you back. And he does with an innocent life and with innocent blood and with divinity that is perfect in every way. Jesus says, I will pay for you because you, right now you are owned by death. You are a slave to death. You are the property of the enemy. You are bound to the grave. But what I have can buy you back to redeem you. And what Jesus does is he comes onto the scene of our lives and he comes into the auction market of our world and he says, I want her and I want him and I've got what it takes to buy them back and to purchase their freedom. And he holds up that, look, you are wrecked and you are hopeless and you are an adulterer and you are a wanderer and many times you are an enemy of mine. But I will be yours if you will be mine. That's Jesus. That is this God that James is writing to us about. That is this God that we get to gather and peer at and have relationship with and sing to when we gather together. 